Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Steve Orlins, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Admiral Mike McDivitt. Uh, Mike has just completed a book, which I will hold up for all of you to see, China as a 21st Century Naval Power, Theory, Practice, and Implications. And I was just talking to Mike and telling him that I'm a layperson. I don't really understand the PLA Navy, uh, but this book does an extraordinary job of laying out in the clearest terms I have ever read what the PLAN is about, um, why it is what it is, and what its capabilities are, and what we think its plans are. Um, it's a remarkable read. It's 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 fascinating. Um, I mean, I hesitate to say this a book about the Navy, but it's riveting. Um, let me just talk one second, because this the discussion is going to revolve somewhat around Mike's background. Normally, I don't go over bios of people, um, but in this case, you know, Admiral McDivitt had a 34-year career um, in the Navy, and he had four at-sea commands, including command of an aircraft carrier battle group. He spent all of his operational time in the Pacific, including a two-year assignment in Japan. He was chief of naval operations and strategic, study, strategic studies group fellow at the Naval War College and the director of the East Asian Policy Office of the Secretary of Defense. He also served as director for strategy, war plans, and policy for U.S. SINGPAC, subsequently became PACOM and now Indo-PACOM, but I knew it in the days when it was SINGPAC. Um, he concluded his career as, as uh, Commandant of the Naval War College in Washington, D.C. And I do that because I think that expertise really informs what this book um, talks about. So let me kick off by asking a question, which is why this book now, and who is the intended audience? Are lay people like me the intendants, intended audience, or is the Office of the Secretary of Defense the intended audience? And thank you so much for doing that. One other thing, thank you for being such an active participant in our Track 2 Maritime Dialogue with the South China Seas Institute, where you have been a stalwart and a very productive participant. But Mike, thank you. So I won't call you Admiral McDivitt because I'm too used to calling you Mike, but you have two stars that we remember. Well, thanks, Steve. That was a terrific and very uh, warm uh, introduction that I much appreciated. One minor correction only to keep uh, folks at the Naval War College off my back. I was coming out of the National War College uh, in, uh, in Washington, DC. Um, let me answer the question first about who was it written for. I, when I started, uh, I think my main audience was is essentially have in mind is people who are interested in what's going on with China, and they read about the Chinese Navy and what have you. And, and the whole idea was to provide something that uh, captured the totality, as I understand it, from a Chinese, more or less from a Chinese perspective, 
of what uh, what uh, is going on with China's Navy. Um, and I, of course, I've been writing about the PLA Navy, uh, People's Liberation Army Navy, very awkward title, uh, for a number of years doing papers for conferences and, uh, and seminars and what have you since I've retired. Uh, but the genesis of this book actually took place uh, about seven years ago when I was, uh, of all things, reviewing the text of uh, that tediously long 12, 2012 work report to the 18th Party uh, Chinese Communist Party Congress by Hu Jintao. Uh, in like, unlike uh, our familiar uh, State of the Union addresses in which every, you, you, the, the incumbent president talks about not only all the great things he's done, but all the great things he wants to get done. Uh, this report also talks about the last five years of what the Chinese Communist Party has accomplished, but it also lays out not a want list, but an agenda list. In other words, it actually talks about what is in train, what the plan is, what their objectives are. And so I was looking through that and I came across the fact that uh, Hu Jintao said something I don't think that was ever has ever been said by a leader of China uh, uh, before that time uh, to 2,200 or so members of the Chinese Communist Party, senior members of the party, saying that we are going to build China into a maritime great power. So that struck me as significant. And it seemed to me for this was for the first time in China's history that a leader announced that China has a traditional continental power aspired to also become a maritime great power. I thought this was an audacious as hell, uh, audacious as hell. And it had no equivocation but the more I dug into, did some research on this, because I was working at the Center for Naval Analysis, which is a research institution, I came to realize that the objective announced in 2012, China was not really starting from a clean sheet of paper. In fact, uh, it had also been thinking, it was not a bolt out of the blue, they had been thinking about this notion of how dependent it had become on the maritime domain economically, both for security, uh, and what have you. And so the idea, and then I did a little more research and had a conference and found out that, among other things, China is already, the, with the, in 2012, was a global leader in shipbuilding. It had the largest merchant marine of some 5,000 uh, merchant ships that are owned by Chinese. Uh, it was the, has the large, world's largest coast guard, far and away the world's largest fishing fleet, and it's a leader in maritime research and exploration time. So what in the world was who talking about the saying going to become a great maritime power when you look at the uh, rack up all of the uh, components of maritime power as I just did, China was already a leader. It already was a great maritime power. Well, the answer is all of those things uh, China ranked either first or second, maybe third in one case, depending upon how you count in terms of the different aspects of maritime power, the broad aspect, except in one case, the Navy. The PLA Navy was not yet in 2012, uh, one that we would call a global a global maritime power, or a, certainly not the world-class uh, Navy that Xi Jinping wants. So the focus of the book became not China as maritime power, but China as a naval power, because the PLA Navy was a 
final piece, and if you will, in the ambition. But it's also the keystone of the whole edifice of maritime power. Without the Navy, they, the Chinese argue that they don't have strategic support for all the other aspects of naval power. So uh, that's a very long answer to your question, but that was that's the genesis of, of the book and why it's focused on, on the Navy. You know, one of the things that's really interesting is this has happened uh, in terms of historical terms almost overnight. It's a fascinating case study as well. Uh, at least in contemporary times of a Navy going from a relative insignificance to being a major naval force in just slightly more than two decades. And so if you're interested in the Chinese Navy and how it, what it, where it is today and why it has gotten there, uh, take a look at the book. How much did your experience at sea, you know, being a commander of a, of a carrier group, for instance, affect, you know, you're not an ordinary scholar. You're not somebody who's who sat in there in the in, in looking at, at stuff, you know, in the archives, so to speak. You've right. been out there commanding. How did that inform your writing of well, actually, I did look in the archives too, but no, my operational, my operational experiences. Um, when you take a destroyer and sail off, in my case, from San Diego, and go off to the Northern Arabian Sea, where the Chinese have been doing their anti-piracy patrols and what have you, and then you're at sea for fifty or sixty days, sometimes. Uh, uh, and you're worried about things breaking down, you're worried about, in our, my case, looking for a Soviet submarine, and all of those sorts of things. I could, I could envision <clears throat> what, these, what, what the Chinese Navy was going through as they were starting to become globally operational, where they were suddenly thousands of miles away from home as opposed to two days steaming time, or three days away in, the, in China's near seas and all of the problems that are associated with keeping a ship operating and doing what it's supposed to be doing for a very long period of time. And so that really did inform the way I looked at how the PLA Navy has, has been developing. The, um, the book talks about the national security strategy um, that was put out in 2017. Um, and it says that China seeks Indo-Pacific regional hegemony in the near term. This is the strategy, not the book. And ultimately, global preeminence in the long term. What does your book tell us about these conclusions? Well, my view is that China certainly does want to be the predominant power uh, in uh, East Asia, at least in the maritime uh, region of East Asia. Uh, perhaps up to through the Philipp to include the Philippine Sea, but certainly the East China Sea and the South China Sea. But it's not the entire, I mean, they may have ambitions, but they certainly are not going to be the predominant power in the Indian Ocean, for example, nor are they going to be the predominant naval power globally. Uh, once, once the Chinese Navy sails out from underneath the umbrella of its land-based air power, both the Chinese Air Force as well as the Naval Air Force, or its land-based ballistic missiles, uh, and goes in, in leaves, sails out, let's say, a thousand miles or 1,200 miles away from China. Uh, 
it is very vulnerable. It has it has no air cover. It has no long range missile cover. It's totally dependent upon what the ships bring with them to defend themselves. Uh, and so when it goes ventures out into the Indian Ocean, for example, on three ship task groups and what have you, it's running into the area where the entire Indian Navy is obviously in the Indian Ocean, right on either coast of India. The U.S. Fifth Fleet is in the far reaches of the Indian Ocean, um, uh, where it was going and where it is going for its anti-piracy patrols in the Gulf of Aden and what have you. So it it at least in the Navy, the Navy, it is not going to be a global predominant Navy for a very long period of time, at least in, in terms of predominance. That's not to say operations. They have the ability to go, they built, have built as of today about 135, what I call blue water ships, warships that can sail anywhere in the world and stay there and operate. So they, during peacetime, they can certainly go show the flag, conduct naval diplomacy, virtually anywhere in the world. But when you talk about predominance, I'm thinking in terms of military terms, they are definitely, once they get away from home, they are not the predominant force by any, by any uh, measure. That's their ambition in the Eastern, uh, uh, East Asia. So what's this concept of, you know, the Haiyang Changua, the great maritime power? It, 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 does it mean the greatest maritime power? Does it mean equal to the greatest maritime? What is it, you know, because it's repeated constantly, both in Chinese and in English, you know, Haiyang Changwa, and kind of they're, they're those who say, oh, it means global predominance. When you look at, the first thing is when you, it's either, I've either seen it translated either, either as great maritime power or maritime great power. Uh, I tend to use them interchangeably, unfortunately. But when you look at what the Chinese meant by maritime power, they were talking about the entire maritime enterprise. So they were, as I mentioned, they were talking about their merchant marine, their coast guard, their fishing fleet, uh, their shipbuilding industry. They used the term maritime power the way uh, Westerners use the term maritime power, which is very broad. It, it, it gets confused. It is maritime power, if you, to be strict about it, is not talking about naval power. Naval power is just about navies. Maritime power uh, is the entire uh, maritime enterprise. Unfortunately, they are used interchangeably. Uh, uh, sea power, maritime, naval. But when talking about, I was talking about the collective, uh, if you will, the entire maritime enterprise. And so what he meant by that, um, he never said, nor has Xi Jinping said, ipso facto, this is what it means. But what you have to judge where, how they see it is you have to look at what they've done. As I said, they've built the largest uh, merchant marine and, and, and so forth. And so what they've done, they are clearly at the top level of every, in every category and today, including the Navy, either one or two or the top three across the board. And so when you look at every other maritime nation in the world and look at the, and look at the totality of their capabilities, shipbuilding and, uh, or, or uh, merchant marine or size of their Navy, whatever, China 
outmatches everybody, including the United States, as a maritime power, not a naval power, but as a maritime power. I, lest I be understood, the U.S. is still number one as a naval power in terms of tonnage and what have you. But again, China is working hard to gain on us. But in every other category across the board, they are in the, in the top tier. So they're already there. They are a great maritime power. The book talks about the four objectives um, that, that China's, you know, the PLAN has. Defending China from attack from the sea, protecting sea routes. Three, pursuing the global political and security interests that China's global economic interests have created. And four, recovering sovereignty over its claimed maritime territory, especially Taiwan. Is this normal for a rising power or is this something we really should be deeply concerned about? I don't make any pretenses to being a, a scholar that can talk about um, uh, normality for all or historically of all rising power. But I would say in the case, in China's case, a country with a sense of grievance, the century of, hum, of, uh, of uh, uh, humiliation. Um, all of these objectives are, make sense. China doesn't want to be attacked from the sea. How did the century of humiliation start? It started by the British coming by sea and in, 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 in trading, and then the Opium War kicked off and started. That started the century. And so, and then subsequently the Second Opium War, and then the Arrow War with the French. How did all those all those folks come? They came by sea. They, in fact, they came via the South China Sea. And so the, there is this sense of grievance that uh, China has, to, uh, plus the strategic reality that their number one potential foe is the United States. And if the United States is going to attack China, how are you going to come? By sea. So, and then you combine those security interests with sovereignty interests, Taiwan, the unoccupied islands in the South China Sea, islands that China does not occupy, uh, or in the East China Sea, those are maritime in nature. And so again, it drives you to, and finally, of course, the, the biggest driver, I believe, uh, is the going out strategy that uh, Deng Xiaoping started in terms of their trade and economic development, now the Belt and Road Initiative and what have you. So they have tremendous economic interests which have created political interests abroad. And so all of those things together layered on top um, of, a, of, if you will, a sense of grievance and a sense of never again, never again will I be, in, be invaded and defeated uh, by forces coming from the sea have all contributed to, I think, a, if you will, a Weltershang of making sure that we are really, really capable of defending our maritime approaches. By the way, those who want to, I've already got a dozen questions, but those who want to ask questions, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen and send in a question and uh, please identify who you are so I can announce that as I ask the question. The book talks a lot about uh, the PLAN participating in the anti-piracy campaign and how much they learned about the ability to kind of, as you were describing, to 
sustain themselves far from shore. Was that a mistake? Did the United States make a mistake in allowing China to participate or asking China to participate? Well, the truth of the matter is we didn't get a vote. Uh, this was China decided to participate based upon UN resolutions uh, uh, passed in 2008. One called Resolution 1816 and the other one called Number Resolution 1838 in combination. One permitted naval forces to enter Somali coastal waters in pursuit of pirates and to conduct uh, anti-piracy. And the second one uh, eight, eight, uh, in October of 2008 was essentially a plea from the United Nations to all uh, maritime uh, countries who were dependent upon maritime trade and what have you to contribute to the anti-piracy patrol. And it was thanks to those two UN resolutions uh, essentially tugging on among other, uh, a lot of countries, but certainly China's sleeve to say, hey, you've got a lot of ships coming through here. We would like you to participate. So that's when China, Beijing made the decision uh, to dispatch uh, two destroyers and, a, and an oiler uh, to the uh, Gulf of Aden. Uh, and they, they left China in 2008 and they're still at it. Now, 12 years later, one, and I think this is the, number, the 36th task group and since that first one, China has essentially created a rotation where there's constant presence of Chinese warships in the, uh, I call it the, the far reaches of the Indian Ocean, the Gulf of Aden, the Arabian Sea, uh, nonstop. But now instead of what they did in the first two or three, when, they're, when the next group shows up, the group that's being relieved then takes off on a three-month tour of port visits to East Africa, West Africa, into the Mediterranean, showing the flag, conducting naval diplomacy, demonstrating bright, clean, shiny new Chinese warships, very squared away sailors uh, uh, that China has arrived. And each, each task group is assigned a different package of countries to visit. And so by the time they get home, they, on average, they've been gone about seven months, which is, which is the standard deployment length that I grew up with, which is quite a, quite a long time away from home port. Um, uh, and and uh, they've been doing, as I say now, for the last 12 years. So this has been a, a tremendous accelerant uh, to their capabilities uh, because one, uh, they actually, as I said, they had to learn how to take care of ships a long way from home. Two, they got to, they were out mixing it up with and or sailing around with ships from other great navies around the world so they could watch, they observed best practices. And they also began to exchange uh, operational uh, uh, communications on a very basic level, but so many of those warships out there were flying helicopters somebody had to be able to deconflict so you didn't have mid-air collisions of one helicopter chasing or two helicopters from two different ships from two different countries all closing in on the same piracy attack. Uh, and so China has learned lots of those kinds of practical operational details. It's learned how to do underway replenishments at sea day and night, 
two or three ships, uh, one on either side of the oiler and one astern uh, refueling. So they have become quite, quite proficient at looking out for themselves, again, in a peacetime environment uh, out there. Um, and of course, now they've built a base at Djibouti to where they can actually pull in and um, uh, and take some time alongside to do repairs if necessary and, and that sort of thing. Did we get a benefit from the burden sharing? Did oh, the United States get a benefit? From I think the United States. I think all of the all of the uh, that they the European Union had uh, forces out there. NATO had forces. Uh, Japan had forces. I think everybody who has watched the Chinese in action during the last 12 years have have uh, realized that they have made up, uh, they have been professional and have made a, uh, a contribution to the suppression of piracy. Now, there isn't much piracy going on right now. And of course, uh, people like uh, the Indians are very concerned about the fact that China still keeps hanging around uh, there uh, uh, in the Arabian Sea. Uh, when there aren't any real pirates to chase, or not very many at, the, at this day and age, but the rotation continues. The, uh, the book talks about China's kind of lack of transparency in how many ships it's failed, it, it tends to build, submarines it tends to, it intends to build. Would transparency by the military, China Military Commission, the CMC, address some of the problems we have with, with China's rise. You know that's a that's a very good question. When I when I wrote the book, I I was making the point that while the U.S. and virtually every other country in the world that has to go to a parliament or a diet or a congress or somewhere for money for appropriations to build ships, which are expensive warships, which are expensive, has to essentially say, here's what we want to use it for. This we want to buy, and this is how many ships or submarines or whatever it is I want to buy. Uh, to make the contrast, that China doesn't have to tell anybody. They and they don't. They, in fact, it's a state secret. I've been told, and so we don't know how big. What it really matters is what does it mean in terms of what's China's end state. For example, the United States, the, the Trump administration approved. Uh, uh, an, a goal of 355 ship navy, and that's now people are debating. Oh, it needs 400. Anyway, needs a bigger number. But the point is, uh, we don't know, and nobody knew knows. The Chinese know, presumably, but nobody else knows how large the uh, Chinese navy is going to become. Now, would it? If they told us, would that make a difference? Uh, a few years ago, I think it would have. Uh, now, when we're in the mode of uh, strategic competition, uh, I think that the number, because it, it clearly where they are right now is not where they want to be, because uh, Xi Jinping has said we need to build to a world-class Navy. Uh, the numbers might be so alarming that it would scare the bejesus out of their neighbors. Uh, and um, it would throw gasoline on the already incipient uh, naval arms race between the United States and China. It, would, it, would, it certainly would arm uh, everybody who said, we need a U.S. Navy of X number of ships. 
if you had, and because look at how many ships China is going to build. We can count what they have built, but that that degree. So I'm not sure if it would make the situation any better, quite frankly. Interesting. Talk about, you know, we, we have the Liaoning and now we'll soon, uh, or we've seen a second aircraft carrier. The Shandong, and, yeah. And how many aircraft carriers does the United States have? Well, we, we have, we have uh, 11, uh, 10 plus the, the, the uh, uh, Bush, which is, uh, excuse me, the, uh, uh, good grief, I'm having a senior moment, uh, the Ford uh, is yet to be commissioned, but we'll, we will have a force of roughly 11, maybe a, a pass through 12 and then back down to 11. Is China gonna build towards that number? Well, we don't know what that, well, that's a good question. You know, based on the last question, we have no idea. We can speculate. I don't, I, they're not, I don't think they're trying to match us ship for ship. In other words, if we have 11 carriers, they want 11 carriers. I don't think that's what they have in mind. I think, I think they're building the carriers because, remember I was talking earlier about sailing out into the Indian Ocean, for example, where there all of a sudden no air cover, they're at the mercy of, of uh, anybody with an airplane with a cruise missile. Um, uh, they have a, if they're going to operate ships around the world, they would, they would like to have air cover so that they're not totally vulnerable to, to attack from the air, from aircraft, land-based aircraft. And so, you know, the, the conventional wisdom seems to think that maybe six, the first two that they have are because they use jump, uh, where airplane takes off and uh, and uses the, the the ramp, if you will, like a ski jumper, uh, to jump uh, to get it to get airborne. Uh, and there, then the third one that they are building is going to be larger, about eighty-five thousand tons, and it apparently is going to have catapults, but. To me, the, the more interesting thing is they're really behind the power curve in terms of the airplanes to fly off those aircraft carriers. The, the current jet uh, that they fly off, the two that they have is uh, called the J-15, the Flying Shark, uh, and they only have around 25 of them. And the, that's not enough to fill out the air wing on both of these ships simultaneously. And they don't, they don't seem to be spitting out anymore. So I think that this airplane has probably proved to be less than satisfactory. It was a, a knockoff of a former Soviet aircraft. And I think they may be finding tr having trouble with it in terms of particularly low landing speeds and danger, dangerous landing. Yeah. And as a result, they're working on a new carrier aircraft. So meanwhile, they're building ships but they really don't have a very good airplane to fly off of those ships. So uh, it's kind of stay tuned. And do they have the training to run it? In other words, one of your success, I was with one of your successors, another aircraft carrier battle group commander who said, building of it is one thing, but that ain't the toughest part. Well, the toughest part is in fact, operating them safely, integrating the air wing and the ship's company together. Uh, you know, the, air, the, the ship is the airport. And then the air wing has to do things once it takes leave, once it leaves the airport, but it has to come back. And so, so the um, uh, now they have practiced 
they've been practicing now for what, five years, I guess, with the first one, Lowning, maybe six years. Um, and they've got the basics down uh, and they're trying to, trying to train up more pilots. Um, uh, and, but they have not demonstrated a, 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 a long-term deployment. They've gone off into the Philippine Sea for a couple, three days, uh, uh, sailing around and whatever, and then sailing back and what, whatever. But they have not used, not employed them on any kind of a sustained basis. So, I still think they're in the very much in the rock before they run stage. The chapter on uh, near seas combat is 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 just riveting. I mean, it's you know it, it lays out these various scenarios that is that are really quite scary in truth. And it, uh, let me quote it directly and then ask you to talk about okay. uh, where you say, it is also likely that this is once China elected to use force against Taiwan and the US opted to respond, the war at sea would likely spread globally very fast, after which whenever and wherever around the world, the US Navy and PLAN encountered one another, combat would ensue. Talk about that eventuality and what that all means. Well, it, 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 it means that there, there, would no, there would not be any uh, haven, any excluded zone that war at sea, if I find a ship that, uh, you know, the US is busy fighting the, the PLA Navy uh, in around the first island chain or in the Philippine Sea, that Chinese ships in the Indian Ocean wouldn't get a pass. Uh, that in fact, the fifth fleet would, would be told to take care of them and they would or try to. And so uh, why do I believe it would go quickly go global? Uh, history mainly. Uh, the most recent example is what is sometimes called the phony war at the beginning of World War II from September 1st, 1939 until Germany invaded uh, France in this May of 1940. Hardly anything happened. In fact, there are people in the UK were calling it the Sitzkrieg because we were sitting facing each other, not much going on uh, before the invasion of France. Well, the war at sea went global instantly. The British Navy was the Royal Navy was after the, the, the German Navy in the South Atlantic, in the Pacific, wherever they could find them, they went after them and took them on and took and sunk them. And the 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 U-boats for, for the German side, they went global. Uh, and in fact, when we started, when, yeah, when we, the day after Pearl Harbor, the U.S. declared unrestricted submarine warfare against Japan. Wherever we could find a Japanese ship, we were willing to sink it. And so it seems to me that uh, the maritime domain, that, that just because ships are hiding, or not hiding, but operating somewhere else, that is not at the immediate uh, scene of conflict, that they get a free pass. That would be it, but, but I hate I hate to add, that would be a presidential decision. The, the, the White House uh, and, and uh, the Secretary of Defense would have to decide to give that those orders, but my guess is that's what would happen. I've been on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, um, both in Xiamen and in Jinmen, so we're, 
you know, I always joke, if you had a good arm, you could throw a ball from Jinmen to the mainland. What's the risk there that, that we would see some, you know, I think you lay the consequences of a real attempt to take Taiwan as so catastrophic that it's unlikely it would occur, but taking over Jinmen, which you also discuss, is a much more limited uh, operation, which probably could be accomplished. Well, you know, Jinmen is, I think, the biggest island, and there's, I guess there's uh, 15 total granite <coughs> islets that compose uh, Jinmen. Um, it would be, they're so close, six miles, two miles away from the mainland that they would be, uh, the, the, the PLA, the Army and the Air Force and the Navy would quickly try to overrun them and take them out. Now, and I think they could probably do it quickly, but it would be bloody. I, you know, provided that the, that the Taiwan military garrisons on those features are, are well-armed, or have lots of extra ammunition. They've got, you know, they've been digging, they have tunnels and caves and what have you that that have been uh, uh, put in place since the mid 50s. And I, I don't want to overdraw the comparison, but we everybody's seen movies, I think about Iwo Jima and how hard it was to, to get the Japanese out of those caves and what have you. Well, it would be a tough fight. It, there's no doubt that it would, that the PLA would win but they would take some casualties doing it. Let me go to <clears throat> some audience questions. Uh, first is from Isabel Hilton from China Dialogue. Hi, Isabel. Part of the naval strategy is building capacity for submarine warfare. How would you assess the current capability and read the Navy's capacity to sustain longer distance operations. Should we not take note of the acquisition of port facilities across the Pacific or the South? Sure, uh, to the last question, absolutely, yes. Uh, well, they already have uh, one base, as I mentioned, Djibouti, and, and they have uh, a place that they've used even before Djibouti was open. They have places all along, uh, in Oman and uh, uh, West Af East Africa and what have you that, and certainly BRI, any of the facilities that are being built uh, that could be lumped into the BRI process for improving harbors and ports and what have you. In fact, some Chinese management, all of those are available for peacetime access. I make the point that it's peacetime access and certainly that but in wartime, the countries have the ability to say, you are not allowed or permitted or welcome to come. Now, whether they would or not is another matter. Uh, but if there was a conflict going on, there is the possibility that, the, that these many countries would exercise their sovereignty and say, you are not permitted to come in here, you're a, you're a uh, belligerent, you're a hostile belligerent fighting a conflict, and we don't, we're not going to allow you to stay or come, or maybe only stay for 24 hours to get replenishment. It's not a base. These are not bases. They're access points where you can go in, ship can get in, come in, get fuel, get fresh food, uh, stay for a couple of days, let the sailors go on liberty, make make uh, visits to dignitaries, et cetera, et cetera, have a reception on the ship. 
Uh, so you invite all the notables from the town or the capital if they're nearby and why have you to come to the, so all of that goes on. But the, those countries have the right to say no if they have the courage to. Uh, so the base, the base issue is, is different in the sense that, uh, you know, the Djibouti is a base, the others are access. All access, absolutely. Now, in terms of submarines, uh, China has invested, uh, it continues to invest a lot in submarines. They, they uh, have a very large conventionally powered in, that, in the sense that these are not nuclear powered, which has a big, makes a big difference in terms of their endurance uh, and their operational speed and what they can do with the submarine. But they have, they're building modern uh, conventionally powered submarines uh, in numbers. And it's clearly a key part of their layered defense, the submarines, and and they are going to be building more nuclear-powered attack submarines, which will even improve their capabilities. So, particularly as a defensive strategy to keep the U.S. Navy away, uh, or uh, uh, they their submarine force is is quite capable. And they're trained mainly to, to, to attack ships as opposed to attack other submarines. They're, 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 their goal is to either shoot a torpedo or a cruise missile at a ship. And so, yes. Now, the other side of the submarine issue is how good are you at finding them or anti-submarine warfare? Uh, the cop, it, it's conventional wisdom, whether it's true or not, I really don't know, but it's conventional wisdom that China still has a long way to go when it comes to anti-submarine warfare, i.e. finding and attacking a U.S. or somebody else's submarine. Um, but again, they are putting a lot of money and effort into this. Their ships are superbly equipped. They have every possible, uh, their destroyers and frigates and corvettes, every possible anti-submarine device that you can load on a ship, they've got. Uh, and so uh, they're now whether those things work as well as they would hope, whether they are good enough at deciphering the acoustic signals that they may get, I don't know. But they have all of the, they've equipped themselves. Now the question is, have they trained themselves? And I don't know the answer to that which leads nicely into the next question, which is from Charles Jang from USPTO, who asks about innovation and naval power. How will AI and drone and technology on the horizon change the balance of power? What is the role that innovation plays in both the US and Chinese navies? Well, the role innovation has played over the years in the US Navy has been, uh, is, is remarkable. Uh, data links for the very first time at sea and uh, three, three dimensional radars, et cetera. So all of the other, all of the innovations that have made the current US Navy, the Navy it is today, has largely been based upon technical advances or innovations. Um, and after all, nuclear powered warships, that, that was a Na US Navy innovation. Um, Many of these innovations are too expensive for anybody else to afford except a country like China or Russia, or maybe the UK or Japan, uh, but many are not. And so uh, they, these uh, 
innovations tend to proliferate and spread. It's hard to have a have a, a really cool, neat little capability that only you have and nobody else can can get their mitts on. And China is particularly good at getting their mitts on things that are uh, uh, that uh, people want to close hold uh, hold close. Uh, and and so China is an innovative uh, in a way, but it's also uh, they are quite good at at uh, replicating and elaborating on proven designs, proven systems. For example, uh, their early sonars all came from France. Um, Russian combat systems, missile systems, and what have you are, are very derivative. Uh, that's not to say that China isn't working hard at being uh, innovative, but many of the systems on their ships uh, are not necessarily what I would consider innovative, but I would consider derivative. Uh, but once again, they're working hard at, at uh, moving into the AI world uh, uh, and what have you, and, and, and unmanned vehicles. And both names talk, make them practical is a problem that none of them, have, none of us have solved yet. Let me combine a question that Carl Eikenberry asks, um, which is with a, a questions, two questions that I want to ask. Does the CCP political control system imposed on the PLA discourage the mid and junior leader initiative required for a modern Navy to be effective? Which leads into two of my questions, which is you say that a world-class Navy for China is still 15 to 20 years away. And also in terms of the counter-intervention strategy, you say it requires a joint force, which the PLA does not have. So kind of talk about those three related questions. Okay, let me, first of all, let me say hi to Carl. Um, and um, that the dual command um, system that the PLA has, uh, for those who uh, don't know what I'm talking about, it's essentially not only the Navy, but it, throughout the People's Liberation Army, they have a commander and then they have a political commissar who is of, he, he may either be of equal rank, maybe even senior, who, who are the uh, share dual command in theory or in practice. They're both there. And now, in terms of uh, stifling uh, in, uh, initiative and in junior officers, uh, I'm not sure that uh, party organized militaries uh, are necessarily uh, fonts of initiative uh, to begin with officers in the Chinese Navy don't know any other way to do it. They've never done it. This is the only way they've ever uh, uh, experienced. Uh, and so it seemed very peculiar to us uh, or to most Western military, but it doesn't seem peculiar to them uh, because it's how they grew up, how they have learned to succeed and, and, uh, and be promoted. Uh, and so uh, if that allows them a certain amount of initiative, it has to be, I think, within the framework of the party committee on the ship. 
uh, what in in making sure that uh, you're not beyond the bounds of what is acceptable. And this is certainly even more difficult for them today in, in Xi Jinping's China than it was in Hu Jintao's China. And as uh, Xi has continued to clamp down and emphasize uh, that in reminding everybody, and just let me mention to everybody who was listening, it's important to remember that the PLA Navy is not a national Navy. It is the naval arm of the Chinese Communist Party. It's a party Navy. And so uh, it's under, it, and it makes no bones about it. In fact, she goes out of his way to remind everybody that, about their need to be loyal to the party and stamp out any uh, naval officers or army officers or air force officers or whoever would suggest that we ought to be a national army not or military, not a party. That is, that is verboten. The party controls the military. And so I suspect that uh, Carl, and Carl knows more about this than I do really from his experience in China, uh, is that junior officers have a, if they really have bright ideas and what have you, they have to be very careful in how they, and how they promote those and move, move those ideas ahead, lest they be squelched um, because it's not, uh, it's not doctrine. You asked two good, other good questions, Steve. Um, the world-class military objectives was set by Xi Jinping uh, in, uh, in his, two, 2000, his 19th Party Congress uh, presentation in 2017, when he said that uh, China should become a world-class military by, by the 2049 or 2050. And then he said, and, but by the way, by 2035, I want the modernization to be largely completed. So he's suggesting that there's, 50, there's a 15 year window right now, the clock is ticking, that um, China, uh, all of the services, this is not just the Navy now, mind you, all of the services, whatever they intend to, whatever their final end state is going to be in terms of size and mix and composition, he wants that to be largely achieved in the next 15 years, leaving himself another 15 years, if you will, to, to uh, hone operational and tactical uh, and training issues. Uh, that's not to say they're not being honed on now, they're being harped on now about realistic training. So 2035 is a magic year and it fit nicely with 15 years down the road uh, in the 15, for the previous 15 years, how fast China's Navy has uh, commissioned ships. So there's a symmetry there to that argument. Now the counter intervention, I'll try to do this quickly. Um, we, the U.S. Department of Defense calls, has a term for what they uh, call what China's trying to do in terms of uh, defeating America, if it comes to a fight, a fight in East Asia. It's called area denial or AD, 
which means they have to deal with the ships, the US military that's already there, the seventh fleet, all of the, the, the ships and the Air, Air Force and fifth Air Force that are already in home station in Japan, largely. Um, and then there is the issue of what about all the rest of the US military that would be coming in case there was an attack on Taiwan would be crossing the Pacific to come to the rescue, if you will. And that part is called anti-access, or is sometimes it shows A squared. And so the US talks about China as being AD, A2, AD. Uh, it talks about uh, both of those uh, playing a role in counter-intervention. The Chinese talk about that too. And what it is, again, it's derivative of what the Soviet Union wanted to do during the Cold War. It's a process of layering defensive forces out across the Pacific, starting with range of their anti-ship ballistic missiles that can maybe reach out to 1,200 to 13, 1,400 miles from China, where it could attack approaching ships. Then a layer of submarines uh, waiting, and perhaps as a wolf pack, laying in wait for approaching ships that uh, probably through somewhere through the Philippine Sea. And then as it, the forces got a little closer, land-based aircraft and shorter range missiles being able to be shot, uh, launched from, uh, from China's mainland to attack, uh, attack approaching ships. All of this depends on the ability to find them so you can shoot them, right? And that depends upon this open ocean surveillance system, uh, satellites, uh, over the horizon radar, and what have you, to help locate approaching forces so you can tell the missile, ballistic missiles, okay, here's your aim point. So you can vector the aircraft, okay, here's where you need to go. So you can tell the submarines, all right, you need to move from here to here. Remember, those, those are conventionally powered submarines in most, for most cases, they don't move real fast. So you have to give me a heads up, okay, you need to go over here to intercept the Americans. And so that's a layered defense, and that's what I mean by the counter-intervention. All of those are, that's not a Navy game alone. It's the rocket force, it's the uh, Air Force, and it's the Navy, and it's the strategic support force. All of those have to work together in a joint campaign. And China is just now in the beginning stages of learning how to be a joint warfight. Started in 2015 when Xi Jinping decided to, to break all of the iron rice bowls and say, okay, we're gonna break down these service uh, stovepipes. We really are gonna have a joint capability. And they're still working on it, but they've reorganized the entire Chinese military to do this, to force feed uh, the ability for all of the services to operate together in a combined campaign. So that's a, kind of another one of those stay tuned, they're working on. Yeah. What I love, Mike, is you can break it down so a layman like me actually understands the answer. That's, that's terrific. Um, South China Sea, we're running low on time. So let me uh, combine a bunch of questions on the South China Sea. The book says, Collectively, the combination of claims to land features and historic research resource rights makes 
the South China Seas, as the Chinese put it, a core national interest. Um, is that the view of the Chinese government or nationalist media? Could the Chinese increase coercion in the South China Sea? What prevents them from doing that? Did Pompeo's statement, the State Department statement change on the South China Sea change anything? And Nelson Dung, one of our directors asks if, does America's failure to have ratified the Law of the Sea Convention affect our naval presence in the South China Sea? Well, that's a big mouthful here to, to, to deal with here. Um, but we've got to do it shortly because I got one more set of questions. <laughs> okay, well, let me start from the back first. The, certainly the ratification of, of, of UNCLOS or the lack of a ratification of the UNCLOS uh, gives uh, China a great talking point. They beat us over the head with it every time and they remind everybody else that the Americans are preaching to you, but they haven't seen fit to, to sign uh, uh, UNCLOS. Um, does it, has it affected how we've done things like uh, uh, freedom of navigation operations or not? No, because the U.S. and we've, we've Make, make this perfectly clear to China and, or anyone else for that matter that while we haven't ratified it, uh, we, we have followed, we are following all of the, uh, the rules of, uh, of uh, the law of the sea in terms of uh, territorial seas and freedoms of navigation and different uh, maritime rights and responsibilities. So, so it's awkward, yes, it's awkward, but but the reality is, uh, in terms of practice, uh, we we practice it uh, uh, religiously. Um, the Pompeo statement. Uh, I I am not a great fan of uh, the Secretary of State, uh, and, but uh, I think he's on to something with his statement in this past. <clears throat> past July, um, where he said he took existing U.S. policy and what I can think he did is he clarified it. He wanted to make clear that the U.S. policy for many, many years has been we take no position on sovereignty claims. In other words, the U.S. Has not, does not uh, want to involve itself in deciding whether China or Vietnam's or Philippines or Malaysia's claims, overlapping claims to the Spratleys, who has the better claim? We say, we're not in that game. We don't want to take a position on who has sovereignty. But we are in the game of saying, taking a position on maritime rights uh, that are based upon the law of the sea, like exclusive economic zones uh, and uh, a claim of historic rights by the Chinese to say that everything inside the, the, the erstwhile nine dash line that they, uh, or the, actually Taiwan, put on Chinese nautical charts uh, 50 years ago, uh, uh, somehow and they, uh, allows China to claim that everything inside that dash line, those resources of the ocean are theirs including since that nine dash line cuts through the exclusive economic zones of Vietnam and the Philippines and Malaysia, 
uh, in Indonesia for that matter, uh, that they have the right to essentially steal the fish and oil that belong to the Philippines or steal the fish and oil that belong to uh, the Vietnam because is that nonsense. We side with the countries, the liberal countries uh, that uh, whose exclusive economic zone is being illegally infringed upon by China. So that's a good thing, I think, because it brought clarity to what we, where we stood in terms of what we don't take a position on and what we do take a position on. Um, Remind me of the very, that just the, the first part of the first question and I'll get Foreign it. interest. Chinese government Foreign or Chinese interest, yes. media? Yes. Uh, the answer I think is, is first of all, it is a core interest and yes, uh, China has said so. Um, I know there was a debate a number of years ago when, when uh, 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 some, a, a Chinese official uh, uh, said that it was a core interest, and then other Chinese ran around saying, "No, uh, Dai and like, no, no, that wasn't not a." Well, Xi Jinping has trumped all that. Uh, when when Secretary of Defense Mattis went to China two years ago, one of the things that said, uh, "Let me," I, I wrote it down here, thinking you might ask me. Um, she said to the Secretary of Defense, now mind you. China cannot give up even one inch of territory that the country's ancestors left behind. Well, China thinks that the Ch Chinese uh, ancestors, China's ancestors left behind a lot of rocks and shoals in the South China Sea. So, uh, uh, and the uh, last one was the last question. The South China Sea question. Could China increase coercion in the oh, South China Sea? What prevents? Oh, absolutely. It? I mean, in theory, it could. You no, know, there are forty other occupied features in the Spratlys occupied by Vietnamese and Filipinos and Malaysians. That if China wanted to uh, to tomorrow, it could run them all out of Dodge. It could. It, it, you know. What, what what stops them? What prevents them? Well, they don't want to start a war. That would be one thing. Uh, and secondly, one of those uh, people that they might choose to run off of uh, off the seven or eight uh, rocks or shoals that they're sitting on is the government of the Philippines, uh, which happens to have a mutual defense treaty with the United States of America. And so, uh, so that's another reason. There's no reason, you know, for them. To, and finally, I think they don't need to. Um, they're They've accomplished what they want to militarily, I think, in 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 the south, in for most of the south, at least in the Spratlys. Um, and I think over time they believe they can either buy out the other guys, or or uh, make them an offer they can't refuse, uh, in, in without shooting at them, uh, yeah. to get them to leave their 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 forces. So I think they've been working at uh, trying to get hold of all of these features since since. Uh, uh, the uh, early uh, 1960s, when they started moving into the paracels. Yeah. And, so, and, and so this is a very patient accumulation of features. Yeah, um, I know we're over, but let me just ask one final question, uh, because the book talks about the EP3 incident and the USS, USN impeccable incident. 
um, we're early in new administrations, which we're obviously about to experience again in the next few months. Should we expect something of this sort? First part of the question. And second part of the question is, how, do this, how does this book inform what you think President-elect Biden should do early in his administration? And then we will close. And I apologize, but I see virtually everybody is still with us. So we'll just go on for another three minutes. So um, uh, I think that uh, every indication is that, I mean, we hear it when we talk to them on our South China Sea dialogue, every indication is Beijing is looking to improve relations with the Biden administration. And so my sense is if they want to improve uh, relations, the last thing that you would expect them to do would be to provoke some sort of an incident at sea or in the air. Um, and so I don't, certainly we should be, be alert to the possibility, but we should be alert to that possibility all the time because the U.S. military and the Chinese military routinely interact in in these waters, uh, the East China Sea, South China Sea, or the in the air above those uh, uh, these the, these bodies of water, uh, and so there's always the possibility of an accident. Uh, both of, both the Chinese uh, military and the U.S. military have reached uh, memorandums of understanding on very strict rules of behavior and procedures on how ships and aircraft should should interact when they encounter one another. And as long as everybody follows the rules, follows the law, the um, rules of navigation that, that both China and the U.S. are, are, are both members of, there, that uh, there is a very low likelihood of an accident, but you still, you know, an accident is called, happens because somebody made a mistake. So there is that possibility uh, uh, that there could be a mistake, but whether, I don't think that it's in China's interest uh, to provoke an incident. And I certainly don't think it's in U.S. interest to to uh, uh, be particularly uh, obnoxious to toward the Chinese for the new administration. So, what my advice to uh, President Biden uh, would be to uh, be very careful about uh, allowing uh, operations and uh, activities that may have been routine during the Trump administration, be very careful at it, uh, about letting them proceed on autopilot. Make sure that you, have de you decide this is what you want to do as opposed to being surprised because somebody said, oh, we've always done it this way. Uh, and uh, that would be my advice. Well, that is a perfect note to end this conversation. Mike, thank you, first of all, for your service to our country. Second of all, for what you do with the National Committee. And third, for this wonderful, informative book. China as a 21st century naval power. I think the discussion this afternoon has given you a flavor for it. Now it's up to you to go and buy it and read it. And then you can email Mike questions. But Mike, thank you so much. This was a fascinating, fascinating discussion. Thanks very much for inviting me to do this, Steve. I greatly appreciate it. And, uh, and uh, thank you for all those good questions. Great.
Bye all, have a nice, have a happy, it's our last program before the holidays. So everybody have a happy holiday, happy, holidays, happy right. year, and we'll see you next year. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.